This episode of the Student Housing Insight Podcast is sponsored by Simple Bills. Utility management is a beast in student housing. If you're not offering a frictionless and transparent utility billing process for your student residents, it's going to affect the brand of your student property through Google rankings and all the other review sites. Simple Bills is the answer. Check them out at simplebills.com. Welcome to the Student Housing Insight Podcast, where we are putting you in touch with the people who bring student housing to life. I'm your host, Wesley Dees, and if you're new to the podcast, thanks for joining in. And if you work in the student housing industry, I strongly suggest these two things. One, subscribe to this podcast on whatever service you get your podcast from. And two, join the Student Housing Insight community by going to our website at studenthousinginsight.com and click on the login button up at the top right-hand corner. Once you register, you'll have access to not only post about the podcast, but we also have a job board and a ton of resources. But most importantly, you are joining a community of student housing professionals who are discussing ways to make student housing better, which is our mission here. You know, a lot of people say their pets make their lives better. I've certainly had my share of pets, and and I have to say they've enriched my life and my family's life. They've served as companions. They've forced me to be active and social. Uh, I honestly may not be married today if it wasn't for a dog I had in college. And that's a story for another time. And now my family is considering entering the world of of owning a service animal. Let me explain for a second. Six years ago, my oldest daughter was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, which means she can't control her blood sugar. Sometimes it can get really high and she has to inject herself with insulin. But the most dangerous thing is that her blood sugar can drop quickly and, and that can become fatal. And that's scary. I, I can't I can't tell you the number of times I, I've woke up in the middle of the night and decided to check on her and her blood sugar had dropped to a level that could put her in a coma. And, and I'm searching for candy and juice to feed her so that we can get that blood sugar up. We were able to put her on a device a few years ago that monitors her blood sugar and will send an alert to, to our phones if she's too high or too low. But we've had issues with those as well. So why am I telling you all of this? Well, because dogs can actually be trained to sense these drops in blood sugar. So we are now evaluating if we want to purchase a service dog for her. They're called diabetic alert dogs or dads. They're about 20 grand and this is something that insurance doesn't cover. So if you'd like to make a donation, Please don't send me your money. Um, But I explain all of this because if you looked at my daughter, you would have no idea she suffers from this, yet she would not be able to live without checking her blood sugar every few hours. As we are considering this purchase, we've realized this dog will likely go with her to college in a few years. So we've been wondering, is her school going to allow her to have the dog in the dorms? Is an off-campus landlord going to allow her to have the animal? Obviously, the answer is yes, because we have laws in this country that require universities and landlords to accept service animals. But then the property manager side of my brain starts thinking about that university and the landlord and the additional responsibility that it puts on them to verify the validity of my daughter's request and and how that information is going to be handled. And, and then there's the other issues like a roommate situation and what happens if the roommate has a pet and they're not responsible in cleaning up the waste and, and my daughter ends up being fined because uh, you know, a property manager made an assumption that it was her service animal what what if pets are not allowed and because a neighbor sees my daughter with a service animal they decide they'll just get a doctor to prescribe them a service animal to support their emotional stability or or whatever diagnosis that they want to come up with these thoughts drive me crazy and this is the reason i've titled this episode college students and pets it's a real animal house I know this topic drives property managers and student housing administrators crazy as well. So I wanted to bring in the top experts in this topic to help educate us on 
what the law actually states and and what are the best practices for managing a pet-friendly property, as well as the important process of just verifying assistance animals. One of the experts is a return guest to the podcast. John Bradford from PetScreen.com also owns a property management company, and he's a previous lawmaker in the North Carolina House of Representatives. So between his frustrations with tenants who didn't take care of their pets and repeatedly hearing about landlord-tenant cases that involved animals, he decided to create a company that would help the industry navigate these issues. Not only has he developed a platform and a service to address these issues, he's also meeting with HUD and other government agencies on a regular basis to point out many of the flaws in their own language and, and how they enforce things. So this is the guy when it comes to this issue. Our other guest is Jay Rettinger with Biopet Laboratories. They provide a DNA testing service called Prints. Maybe you've heard of it. This helps property managers keep their dog-owning residents accountable for their dog's waste. At one of our recent summits this fall, these guys made an announcement that they are entering into a partnership that will allow the two companies to share their information to provide a more comprehensive service to the property managers. With that being said, let's get to my interview with John and Jay. John and Jay, welcome to the podcast. Hey, good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having us. Well, this is this has been such of an important topic this past year, not just in student housing, but just in and rental housing in general. And of course, John, you've been on the on the podcast before when you launched PetScreen.com. And, and welcome back to the podcast. It's hard to believe that was almost two years ago. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah. And thanks for having me. It's, uh, I feel like a boomerang. I'm back. <laughs> well, I'm excited, you know, to kind of get an update of, of, you know, what's happened to the product and that type of thing. We'll, we'll jump into that in, in just a second. But let me, let me just kind of, you know, set this up for, for everybody. You know, people love their pets, but historically, especially when it comes to student housing, full-time students have not always made the best pet owners and, and therefore pets have typically not been allowed at student properties. But with, you know, the properties looking to, to differentiate themselves from competitors and combine that with legal opinions regarding service animals and most off-campus properties are, are moving towards a pet-friendly status because of that. And now student managers, because they're accepting those pets, are dealing with issues with breed restrictions and, and figuring out ways to keep harmony between tenants who are pet owners and, and the tenants who are not. And, and these are problems that need solutions. And, and you guys have both created services to help property managers overcome these obstacles. So that's what we're going to be getting into today. But really quick, if if you guys could each, you know, for our audience, kind of give the origin story of your companies and what they're doing. And uh, I think that'd be a great place to start. Very good. This is uh, John Bradford with Pet Screening. Uh, I'll start. So I am a professional property manager. So I actually come from the industry. And so I understand firsthand the challenges with tenants who say they don't have a pet, but they might go get a pet later, or perhaps they have a visitor uh, every weekend. Maybe it's a boyfriend or girlfriend or a parent coming up for the big game and they bring their pets. That still creates liability issues for the property manager and the landlord. And I've experienced that. I've also experienced uh, dealing with pets and that, you know, pet bites are real. They do happen. And so it's important to really have as much information you can on it, on every pet that's living in one of your uh, assets. And then lastly, there uh, are a lot of bad actors who are trying to circumvent pet policy. So they're trying to get out of paying pet rent, pet deposits, any type of pet fees. And they're claiming that they have a disability and a disability-related need. And they're saying their pet is really an animal. And while there are a lot of legitimate people that do have disability and disability-related needs who need these animals, there are far more uh, group of bad actors. And um, and I got frustrated with that. So I served in the <laughs> North Carolina House of Representatives, and I was really the expert lawmaker, both on the Senate and the House side. So I carried a majority of the tenant landlord bills for my state, and animal issues kept surfacing to my office. And these are really more federal guidelines, but states are still wrestling with this. So yeah. it was really from those two skill sets of being a property manager, being a, a state lawmaker, that I wanted to go create a service that would help the industry navigate the complexities of dealing with 
tenants and pets and of course people who who say they have animals and uh, making sure that they're legitimate. Yeah, and, and again, the company is called Pet Screening. Uh, I think you guys started out as PetScreening.com, but I know in your branding, you've you've dropped that off this past year. And uh, we'll get a little bit more into some specific questions I've got on, on that. But Jay, uh, your company is a little bit older than, than John's and has been servicing with the product called Poo Prints. And Poo Prints is actually part of, of a bigger company called Biopet Laboratories, uh, Jay, that you're the CEO of. If you would, give us a little bit of background on, on Biopet and Poo Prints and, and how that came to be and what you guys are doing to service the industry. Yes. Yeah. Thank you, Wes. Yeah, I'm Jay Redinger with Biopet Laboratories. And Biopet is an animal genetics company. It was founded in around 2008. And Poo Prints is our flagship program and service. And some people say that we kind of stepped in this industry accidentally. <laughs> um, Biopet, uh, we had been providing some laboratory services for veterinary offices, doing some genetics work, always trying to see how we could solve different issues and problems through DNA technology. And and we, in about 2009, we had a scientist that was had moved to town, was living in an apartment complex. And there was poop everywhere. And as she got to know that property manager on site, she began to see the complaints that the property manager received, um, the time she had to spend dealing with it. And the story goes uh, that one morning she stepped in a pile, our scientist, and she'd had enough. And she thought, you know what, there's got to be something that we can do about this. And so from there, we started some research about DNA and fecal matter and, and some canine markers. And we the Poo Prince program was born. And so we've been around uh, uh, right at 10 years this year. Great. So so both of your companies have, were really kind of born out of a, of a personal frustration <laughs> that, that the founders and uh, the others working in the industry uh, were having and wanted to find a way to fix it. John, you've got firsthand experience when it comes to when it comes to property management because your other company is overseeing single family homes. Where from a from a pet perspective, that's kind of the ideal time when people are are wanting to bring on a pet because they are renting the house versus in a multifamily environment where you've got multiple people living on top of each other and everything else, and so. That, uh, you know, one, I just want to say thanks for doing this because I know that this was something that frustrated you from a standpoint of your other business. But what we've gotten from pet screening over the past year since I've been involved with it, I think is really setting and, and really it's the only option out there. But it's it's really kind of uh, kind of putting everybody on notice, both on the on the property management side of, hey, this is you've got to take these this pet thing seriously because you're opening yourself up to a lot of liability but even more so putting this the residents on on notice of hey <laughs> this pet thing is serious you need to take it seriously uh, most most pet owners I, I believe are, are responsible but they don't necessarily understand especially renters they don't necessarily understand the additional implications that they could end up having uh, by being a pet owner, especially in an apartment community. So uh, first of all, I just want to say thanks for that. And, and thanks for the insight that you've given us previously on the podcast and, and also part of our, uh, of our summits this past year. And, and at those summits this year, you guys actually came together to announce a, a partnership between your companies and, and how you're working and delivering both of these services to uh, to the property management industry. Can you go into a little bit about how that's going to work? Uh, yeah. So this is John at Pet Screening. I'll jump in and Jay can pile on. So basically, Pet Screening, we're a free service. So we don't cost a property manager a penny or a landlord. And so we're helping create a more accountable community for all tenants and all residents because we screen everyone, even non-pet owning residents. Now that doesn't cost them anything. There's no charge for that. But 
we're going to make sure that non-pet owning residents really understand that that means they know they don't have a pet today, but they're not going to do any pet fostering, any pet sitting, any pet walking, because there are, to your point, Wes, there are implications that come along with that for the property manager that these residents just aren't thinking about. These tenants don't even think that someone's visiting dog, if it bites somebody, is going to create a liability situation for an owner. But when it comes to the actual pets and animals, specifically dogs, Jay's service with with poo prints, it's also creating a more accountable community. The The challenge that I think both of us have, at least from pet screening, I can speak to that, is when people hear pet screening, we're a three-year-old company. You know, Jay's company's been around 10 years. We're a three-year-old company. And very often they hear pet screening, so they assume that we must do the DNA testing. And we don't. <laughs> uh, you know, we don't. We actually, as you know, screen pets for risk. We help validate assistance animals and reasonable accommodation requests. And we don't have anything to do with the DNA. But it often leads to additional discussions about that. And so we have learned that the DNA issue is real and that there's a, a strong interest for it. Jay and I have been on the trade show scene these last few years, so we keep bumping into each other, and we felt like there would be a natural fit. And one thing that I think pet screening brings to the table with Poo Prints working with us together is that we have a, a really uh, well-orchestrated uh, snapshot of all the types of pets and animals that live on a property. So we know if they're cats, we know if they're dogs, we know you know what kind of dog, et cetera. And for Poo Prints, they need to be focused on just the dogs because they test dog waste. And one of the challenges that I know that they likely have are there are people that are dog owners that are just not being tested. And so we thought by integrating, it would make sure that Poo Prints has a better understanding of all the dogs that are on site and the property manager knows that as well. And then they can cross check to make sure that every dog that's living there does in fact have a DNA profile on record. So that way, if there is a pile somewhere that gets <laughs> tested, that there's a better chance of there being a match. And so we thought it was a natural fit. We don't do the DNA testing. They do. We're in the same pet tech uh, property tech space. And it's been a fun journey so far. And, and, and I would say in the next 30 days, the integration will be done. And, and then we'll just get down to making sure our, our customers know that both services exist. And hopefully they'll have some that we'll get and we'll have some that they'll get. And then we'll have some that sign up with us together. And, you know, uh, when it comes to pet screening and, and kind of the profile that you guys do for, for each pet that, that comes onto your platform, I'm assuming that there would also be with this partnership, if, uh, you know, if I've got a dog at, at my community and uh, I'm an irresponsible pet owner and the dog takes his dump, we've got poo prints, the manager's got poo prints there, they send it off, get the lab test back, it's my dog, I get fined. Is it safe to assume that that now that record, that uh, that there's a violation, that that's actually going to go on to the to the pet profile as well so that it's carried over to another uh, to another community if I move somewhere else that has pet screening? Yes, you're exactly right. So we have an incident reporting, you know, pet screening is the first national collaborative database where property managers can report incidents, everything from pet bites to pet property damage, uh, unauthorized pets, you know, nuisance barkers, off-leash offenders. And in this example, pet owners who don't pick up after their pet or animal. And so, yes, when there's a positive match, we'll be able to grab that data through the integration, through the reporting that Poo Prints provides to the property manager. And if that property manager is also using pet screening, we'll be able to grab that record. We'll stick it on that particular pet profile and it will follow that pet and that pet owner into perpetuity so that in the future, if that person moves from, and when I know student housing, so if they're a student tenant and then they move into, they get a job and now they move into, let's say they're in Georgia, going to college there, then they go to Dallas and have their first job and now they rent an apartment, then that apartment provider in uh, Dallas would know that this student has had a history of not picking up their dog waste. And so that becomes incredibly important. And that is, uh, could be grounds very easily for a property manager to say, you know what, we're not interested in renting to you because we have some information that, you know, we just don't think is going to match our uh, policies here. Gotcha. Before I get too far along, because I got some other questions for Jay that I want to ask on, on poo prints. And I want to come back to, because the, the other issue that we mentioned early on is not just you know, irresponsible pet owners, but actually owners of, of service animals as well. And, and there's a lot of confusion on that, that property managers aren't 
fully aware of that I want to come back to to you on on those things. But Jay, just to step real quick back into poop rants, <laughs> um, from our other meetings, I understand that this is only for dogs. You don't service cats or anything else like that. Is that correct? That that is correct. Um, you know, I think I had told you before. Have you ever tried to stick anything in a cat's mouth? Um, <laughs> yeah. We we have not we get the question quite a bit on cats and today we center only around dogs. That's usually what people are out walking, uh, you know, and and being social with uh, is dogs and and using the open space with dogs. Some people the cat population is growing. Some people walk their cats, um, but we don't have a cat program yet. Gotcha. Um, and, well, I'll say, and I do want to take a step back uh, and kind of echo some of uh, John's sentiments on our partnership. You know, one of the things, and I think I, I heard you or John use it before, you know, Pooh Prince has covered the back end. But one of the things that we have seen in the industry as we've evolved, the industry evo- has evolved, and the pet population has continued to skyrocket, is pet screening brought pet population management full circle. We Absolutely, get a yeah. you know, we know dogs and, and and we know pets and we get a lot of questions from our on-site teams, the management companies, property managers on ha- how to handle certain things and poop is our wheelhouse, um, but pet screening kind of brings it full circle for us and allows yeah. us to provide more value to our clients. Yeah. So uh, let's uh, uh, speak it of questions because what well, we did find out you guys were panelists at both our Southwest and our Southeast summits this past year. And, you know, I got to tell you, that was one of the most intense involved uh, sessions at both of these than I think I've had at any of the, the summits on any other panelists, because this is such of a, of a real issue with property managers right now. And, and because of that, you know, the, they obviously had a lot of questions, but some that came out of the summit uh, specifically for, for you, Jay, I wanted to, to bring up because I know that the, the audience that's listening today's probably got a lot of those same questions. So, so kind of first up, can you test urine? You know, we get that quite a bit and we cannot test urine. And our studies have actually shown that a majority of the time, there is not DNA found in urine, unless that dog, yeah, unless that dog is sick, has an infection, you know, uh, and there's something that's um, causing blood or or other contamination in that urine. Most urine does not contain DNA. The other the other scenario we kind of walk people through with urine testing is everybody watches CSI and the crime shows and when you see blood evidence on something uh, which is liquid form like urine to test that you have to cut that you know for example you have to cut a shirt up that's got blood on it and so until we can invent a really good carpet patching kit uh, (laughs) we we probably don't want to implement a urine program gotcha so uh, one of the other questions, and, and kind of came right after you know, the question about testing urine, is I, I've been on site and, and been the guy that has to pick up the poop, right? And, <laughs> and, and and when you're going through that, you understand all the reasons why you actually find the resident back for this because it's 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 so irresponsible. But there are those situations where there's no picking the poop up, right? <laughs> it's the dog is either sick or something else is going on. How well can can that be tested? You know, it it depends. We we do have an a, a extensive training that we walk our on-site teams through on how to collect poop, how much is needed, what type of weather conditions. We recommend that if you if you've had uh, a loose stool, um, something that is is all over the grass and is hard to collect, that a lot of times that's probably you're probably better off not trying to get DNA from that. Um, what a lot of people don't realize, and and I didn't realize till a while back, is the DNA is not in the poop 
and um, the visuals for this are not that appetizing. Um, the, the, the DNA, <laughs> I can imagine. Yes, the DNA is actually located on the outside um, of that sample. Gotcha. You know, as that sample passes through the intestines and everything, it's rubbing against those walls and it's collecting those cells. So when you get a loose sample like that where, where a dog's sick, there probably was not uh, the friction needed to collect those cells. And I hope for everybody that's listening to the podcast, you're not in the middle of eating lunch or right. It's <laughs> probably more information that I ever wanted to know about collecting dog DNA. Oh. <laughs> yeah. um, so once once we do have that healthy sample and we send it off to poo prints, what's the what's kind of the turnaround on getting something back and being alerted? Hey, this is such and such resident. Yeah. So we tell people, um, be prepared for two weeks, you know, um, two business weeks to get results back. But we know that sometimes in the day-to-day life of everything going on on a property in a community, two weeks can be an eternity. So our goal is that we're usually running about five to nine business days for sending results back. Uh, And they're automated through our system. You get an email, you get a notification. And so, you know, we try to stay within that five to seven to nine time period. Gotcha. So uh, what, what does the service typically, typically cost? And is there, are there any localities that, and which is because everywhere I've used poo prints, it's something that we've passed on to the resident, but are there any localities that will not allow the landlord to, to pass this cost along to the tenant? There, there aren't any localities that I know, know of off the top of my head. We service, we have 4,000 communities across the world that use the program, and most do pass it on. We have a couple different implementation methods that we work with properties to roll out. Um, Some people just pass it directly on when they implement the program. Sometimes there may be some pet rent or pet fee increases that allow the property to compensate for it over time. There are really two simple costs for the program. The first cost is registering the dog. Uh, and you know how things, you know, costs can vary by market, like most things, um, but usually it's around 40 to $42 to get the dog registered. Uh, and what, gotcha. yeah, and what we have focused on, we know too that, that properties want to be competitive and provide their residents with amenities. So we have baked into the system a number of partnerships that allow the property to give that pet owner, that pet parent, some free stuff. We've got a partnership with Rover. We've got a partnership with Chewy. We've got a couple others that we're hoping to release towards the end of the year. We also include a free health and wellness application in our system to that pet parent. And yeah, it's great. It has, you know, think of it like a maintenance plan. You know, what do you feed your dog? When do you give them checkups and vaccinations and that kind of stuff? Goes back to that responsible pet ownership. The second cost is for the processing of the poop. So we have a lab fee when that poop sample is sent into us that we send to the property um, and invoice them for the processing that poop. And that those range from about $62 to $65. And then obviously that, that cost is recouped by the property in the fine that's instituted. We stay out of the we Great. stay out of the fine amount. We just provide the service and we let the property dictate the course they want to take with the resident. Right. So this next question I loved when it came from the audience, <laughs> and I've made a couple of changes here just to hide the innocent, but um, what I loved about this was this is exactly what, you know, I think a student would do if they were <laughs> required to to uh, to register their pet with, with poo prints. So I'm a University of Georgia student who owns a bulldog. I'm sure that's, I'm sure that happens. I'm sure in Knoxville, where you're from, there's a lot of blue tick hound owners that are, that are also uh, UT students. So, and my parents own a bulldog as well. So I take my swab kit home to my parents' house and swab their bulldog. And then I, I don't pick up the dog's crap on my property and it ends up getting tested and it's not my dog. What's the workaround for that? 
Yeah, so that's a great question. And as we rolled the program out, we understood that, you know, like John mentioned earlier, with, with even with pet screening, there, there can be bad actors in any aspect. And so at the end of the day, we are a forensic service. And so chain of custody is very important to us. So first of all, when we work with the on-site team to roll the program out, um, we want to create an event and have something that's fun and people are excited about implementing the service, um, bring people down to the office, pool, whatever. And so we recommend that all swabbing takes place in the presence of an on-site team to avoid yeah. that. So you can't go home and, and swab your parents' horse or you can't go home and uh, or go back to your apartment and swab the guy that's been sleeping on your couch for a week um, to make sure. And then and we can also take a photo in our system. So we want to make sure that the appropriate dog gets tested. And then we constantly work with the on-site team to do pet audits and reevaluate their pet population to make sure that everybody's registered, that they have a DNA profile. That's one of the most exciting things for us with pet screening is because you're capturing all of that pet population. And then we also have different protocols uh, that we call DNA verification kits. So if there is ever a question about if a dog has been screened or not or, or swabbed and registered, we can have them, we can send a free kit to the property, have that dog swabbed, and we can test it against the profile we have in the database. And that kind of, I'm going to get in the, in the scientific weeds for a minute. That's where I think sometimes there's a big misunderstanding about our program and DNA that I like to point out. In the research that we did to create the genetic profile that we use for our program, uh, it's not based off breed or traits or things like that. So, you know, if everybody owns a blue tick hound, a lot of places think, well, I got, I got, I got a bunch of blue tick hounds in our community. How do you distinguish between the different Smokies? Our profile is designed just like the FBI uses with a human profile to distinguish to that exact dog, like a fingerprint. So we can tell, we can even tell litter mates apart from each other. Every dog has a, a unique genetic profile in our database. Uh, that's, that's amazing. I thought your, your recommendation there that, you know, you do this inside the, you do the, the swab inside the office with the pet there. As, as pet friendly communities and student housing became a thing, we started switching over. When I say we, when I was on site, we started doing pet interviews and, and it was made into this, you know, kind of, you know, cute thing that uh, it, regardless if it was a resident that was getting a pet or if it was a, a prospect that was going to be moving in and they brought their pet you know, we kind of went through a little dog and pony show, so to speak, <laughs> of, 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 you know, showing them off on the property, getting their picture, you know, put, posting them to Facebook of, you know, hey, Smoke is going to be living at this property next year and, and, and turned it into kind of a, a social event almost and kind of and integrating that into the whole thing, I think makes a lot of sense. So it's a cool idea. Beyond the service, what other kind of stats do you guys provide to, to the property managers? Well, we've got um, a number of stats. I mean, with our results, you know, when a waste sample comes back and it matches, you know, a dog that's on property, it matches in the database. We provide, it's called, it's what we call random match probability. You've probably heard it in court cases and in the human aspect of things where we provide them a number that says, hey, there is a one in five trillion chance that this profile could match any other dog. We also work with property managers to try and understand their pet population. You know, how many waste samples per dog on their property are they seeing? For example, you know, our kind of baseline is that a property, if you've got a hundred dogs on a property, you should not be sending in any, you should not be sending in more than 10% in waste samples of that population. Now, some it may vary, you know, a couple points here or there, but the goal is that you, 
the pet owners register their dogs. They understand the uh, accountability and the consequences if they don't pick up, and it starts to modify behavior. Gotcha. Okay. Well, Jay, that that's it, it's it's completely amazing what you guys are able to do. Again, thanks for for what you guys are providing. And one last thing before I go back to John and we start getting into the conversation about uh, support animals and, and service animals, what's the best way for folks to, to get in touch with you and your company? Yep. We've got representatives throughout the country, but the best way to get a hold of us is you can go to pooprints.com. You can, there's a place there you can fill out we have a live chat but you can also go there and fill out a uh, contact us form and we will send the representative in your area to you and there's a 1-800 number on there where you can call us anytime uh, and we'll address your questions needs anything you need perfect so john i think where a lot of property managers feel a little bit confused and and where things with pet ownership becomes a real struggle for them is when it comes to service animals and emotional support animals. I want to get into emotional support animals for, for just a second. You know, it's, it's easy to see the you know necessity of a CNI dog, but uh, an ESA emotional support animal who helps a resident cope with their PTSD or depression, it's hard to determine the validity and what I love about your service is that you take that verification process off of the property management's hands. You know, your attorneys have vetted your process and, and you've even met with HUD to discuss issues with their own guidelines. Understanding that the, the manager doesn't feel pressure to make an assessment. You guys do that and it diffuses the anxiety of both the manager and the resident in that process. However, when those ESAs cross over into dangerous, aggressive breed dogs or something from, you know, a farm or an exotic animal, managers have to think about the safety of other residents. Uh, when that happens, what's the appropriate response that manager can feel confident that they are within fair housing and HUD guidelines? So, you know, this issue is is complex. You know, you hear a lot about the peacock on the airplane. Yeah, recently, we saw a miniature horse on the airplane. And so airplanes, the airline industry falls under the ACAA, which is the Air Carrier Access Act. And then, of course, you have the ADA, which everyone knows is the Americans with Disability Act, and they define service animals. And those would be uh, limited to dogs and miniature horses in areas of public accommodation, public accommodation being restaurants and theaters, any place where the public is generally welcome. And the rules and the guidelines under ADA as it relates to service animals is not the same as the rules as they relate to the Fair Housing Act, which is for private accommodations, which would be rentals. For individuals that do not have readily apparent disabilities, you mentioned someone who's blind. I mean, someone who's blind who has a dog, very clearly that's a readily apparent disability. So very naturally, they need their dog to be able to navigate and have a quality of life. And there's really nothing any housing provider or any public accommodation uh, place of business would do or can inquire about because it's obvious what it's for. But there's a large population where those are not as obvious. And under the Fair Housing Act, people uh, often confuse the ADA and people come in and say, this is my service animal and it's my registered service animal. And, and there's really just no such thing. There's no such thing as any registry. There's no federally recognized registry by ADA, by the Department of Justice, or by HUD for that matter. And so what they have these pretty the, certificates that really look. Oh, yeah, they're beautiful. <laughs> yeah, they look like diplomas. I mean, they, the, I give them credit. The certificates uh, look very sexy. They look very <laughs> official, but they, they don't that they're not sufficient forms of documentation to support the reasonable accommodation request. Uh, even in this podcast, you know, you've mentioned emotional support animals and service animals. The, the proper terminology is assistance animals. Mm -hmm. uh, assistance animals is sort of the global term under the Fair Housing Act. Assistance animals can include 
a service animal, an emotional support animal, therapy animal, companion animal. Gotcha. But the overall term is assistance animals. And what we do at Pet Screening is we review those reasonable accommodation requests and we make sure that those requests meet the Fair Housing Act guidelines. There are grounds of where accommodation requests can be denied. And you mentioned dangerous breeds. There is no breed limit, if you will. There's no guidelines around breeds or restrictions under the Fair Housing Act. So all breeds are fair game under the Fair Housing Act. However, if you can demonstrate that the specific animal in question has a history of being dangerous, which means you would have to have some sort of evidence to support that, then that could be depending on the situation, that could be grounds to deny a reasonable accommodation request because this animal has a history of biting, for example. And biting, though, was it provoked or was it uh, unprovoked? And we've had instances at pet screening where we've had people submitting an accommodation request and they said, yes, my animal has bit someone. And they provided uh, records from the police department of the biting incident. And I can think of one where the dog was protecting its owner from uh, someone who was attacking her and her dog is her service animal and it was doing what it was supposed to do. That dog was attacking the person that was a, the assailant who was attacking her. Therefore, that dog was provoked. And so that would not be necessarily grounds to deny someone because the dog didn't just bite someone and provoked. It bit someone because someone was attacking its owner. And that's a very natural characteristic of a lot of dogs. And so you have to be careful uh, and be thoughtful when you're trying to say there's a safety issue. You really need to have bona fide proof and you need to be able to demonstrate that there's a real reason for it. So that could be grounds to deny an accommodation request, but it's not as easy as just saying, oh, that's a pit bull. They're dangerous, uh, which, which I don't necessarily share that sentiment, but we hear that a lot. Oh, it's a pit bull. Therefore, it's dangerous and we're not going to allow it. That is not an appropriate application of the Fair Housing Act guidelines. You'd have to prove that that specific pit bull has had a history of creating some sort of safety issue, and you'd have to have the evidence to back it up. Gotcha. Explain really quick. I want to make sure that property managers also understand where this is kind of going when it comes to assistance animals and and why something like pet screening is is so important in order to to not just take this off their shoulders, you know, so relieve some of the things that they're doing, but even from a, a standpoint of, of additional liability, because if, if they're asking for doctor's notes and those kind of things, all of a sudden they're going to have to come under under HIPAA at that point as far as that documentation. Is that is that correct in my assumption with that? Well, I mean, it's, it's really not, and I'll explain why. HIPAA is really a privacy act related to healthcare providers, and property managers have no obligation to be HIPAA compliant. However, it is uh, a very slippery slope when any housing provider starts to deal with someone's very confidential and personal medical records. And because the Fair Housing Act says that you can never inquire to the specific nature of anyone's disability, so really, you should never be asking about someone's disability in terms of, well, what is your disability? That's a, that's a giant no-no. You can inquire if they have a disability, which is a yes or no question. The challenge is a lot of times the documentation that's being brought forth by the requester or the applicant is very thorough and very comprehensive, and it often has very sensitive medical-related documentation. And that is someone's healthcare record. And even though you know, HIPAA doesn't necessarily apply to property managers. It is debatable that there's a responsibility incumbent on the property manager, the landlord, to safeguard that document. And what pet screening does is we actually accept those documents so that the on-site managers and the landlords no longer have to take those documents. They can access the documents and they can authenticate who in their organization should be able to even see the document. So they can decide, you know, maybe if it's a larger uh, organization that has legal counsel, maybe they're the only ones that can see it, or maybe it's the most senior property manager on, on site at that location, but all the other leasing agents cannot. We give full flexibility to our clients to decide who can and cannot see those documents because we like to say we want to save them from themselves. It's easy to get busy and let a document sit on your desk for three hours while you're doing other things. But if another resident comes by at lunch and wants to drop something off and this letter is sitting on the desk and they start reading it and they go, oh gosh, I know Susie in 2B has a PTSD and depression and anxiety. That information 
could be tracked back to the property mm-hmm. manager for not safeguarding it. So at Pet Screening, we take those documents and we use Amazon Web Services, which do have HIPAA compliance type ratings. And so we we just feel like it's wise to use servers that are secure. And so we store those documents and it's just a secure, a more secure situation for not only the requester who has the disability, who's submitting this information, but they can now be more confident that that is not floating around the local office or better yet, just scanned and uploaded into Entrada or Yardi or OneSite or whatever the software application is because other people can still have access to that software and still navigate to that record. And so that's one thing that we do is try to help protect protect that because we know it's an exposure point. Gotcha. Now, when it, when it, you mentioned something there in regards to property management software, and I know you guys provide a lot of integrations when it comes to the application process, for example, with Entrada, because it's very popular within student housing. You know, there's a, there's a sequence of events that have to happen before an application is approved for residency. And one of those may be you know, this, this pet application and because you're screening everybody and having them sign off on something, even if they don't have a pet so that they do understand if mom and dad bring a pet, if girlfriend brings a pet, that's right. You know, they've, they've still got to register it with the office and have it and have it screened because you're doing that. Are you working with the integration with those platforms so that that application is not approved until that's signed off of? So we designed our product to work with any platform. So we we can coexist with, you know, Entrada, OneSite, Yardi, ResMan, PropertyWare, Appfolio, you name it. You know, we could not be presumptuous and think that all of those platforms would ever want to do business with us. <laughs> the good news is they are wanting very much to do business with us. And so we have some two-way integrations with Yardi, OneSite, Rent Manager, uh, Entrada's next on our list. But it is important to note that we have clients that, use those products and they still choose not to use the integration. Uh, They have their reasons for that. So, you know, there's no limitation from anyone, no matter what platform they're using to get started using pet screening. And because we screen everyone from people who have no pets to residents that have pets to residents that have animals, it's, it's very simple process. The property manager just knows that everyone applying needs to go through our service and we have a way to provide a very uh, unique and customizable landing page for that particular community or that company so that they can direct them to one site, uh, to one, one location, I should say. And then once we finish our work, then we push the results back into a dashboard of which all the users of that community or that company can see the, the results. And then it's very easy for them to share that data into their platform. So if they use Entrada, they could share the information right into Entrada because everything we do is digital. So everything has digital DNA, well, no, no pun intended with Jay on the podcast <laughs> here, but, but digital URL links, which is kind of like a, a, a DNA for a specific profile. You can share that into your own platform if you want. And of course, because we're going to be integrated with Pooprints, if there's a DNA number, which is a, I think they call it a DN number at Pooprints, then that would already be in our profile with all the other data. So we would already have that. So now that minimizes the number of places these property managers have to go look for things. Gotcha. So one thing I want to make sure that the the audience really understands is pet screening is not just putting checks in the boxes for things that needs to be collected. Like you guys are really going back and verifying these things. Yes, we are. You've shared some stories with me at some of these summits about you know, folks that had completely forged a letter from a doctor on letterhead <laughs> with yes. his signature. And he, you guys actually called to to follow up, even though you got the letter, everything seemed legit. You guys called again to say, hey, we received this letter. We want you to confirm it. And he said, that's my letterhead. That's my signature. I did not write this letter. And so I think that's just amazing that this isn't just a repository for for forms that are needed, but you guys are taking the extra step of of really going after this documentation and certifying that it's it's actually certified, I guess is the best way to put it. Yeah. So under the Fair Housing Act, you you have to treat every requester uh, individually and uniquely because in theory they have a disability and everyone with a disability is unique. So you cannot automate this process. So yes, pet screening is a technology tool. And as it relates to animals, we collect a lot of information regarding their reasonable accommodation request, 
but it's beyond it goes beyond just collecting it. We then actually have an in-house legal review team that reviews the information. And when I say a legal review team, we have a federal litigator that runs our legal review team. This, this is human capital. We are reviewing every single reasonable accommodation request. We make sure that the two HUD permissible questions are answered correctly. We make sure that the date on the letter is is in a reasonable time frame. We make sure that the requester's name is in the documentation. If it's not, we ask for the housing-related relationship between the requester and then the name in the document because it could be a stepchild or a, or a husband or wife that just don't have the same last name. So we, we make sure we understand those roles. And then we review the letter. We make sure the language in some way affirms that there is a disability and a disability-related need. And if we believe the language meets those requirements, the very last step which is really the the heaviest lift is we actually contact the third party providers. And we're doing that either through email or by telephone verifications. And we're on hold literally all day long. Our team is calling Kaiser Permanente. We're calling United Healthcare. We're on the phone with the medical records departments. And we're making sure that these documents, that they find the same document in their system. And what we're really essentially having them do is we're having them validate the authenticity of the document. And to your point, this is where we find a lot of fraud. Uh, we have reviewed, as of today, we've reviewed over eighteen thousand reasonable accommodation requests, wow. and that may not that may not sound like a big number, but let me tell you something: that is a lifetime supply for any company. I mean, it really is. Even the largest companies, we've done eighteen thousand reviews uh, since we started three years ago. And if you are curious about how many of those reviews yes. actually met the Fair Housing Act guidelines, <laughs> it, it's it's just over uh, uh, or eleven thousand. Of those, of those did not meet the guidelines. Oh, it's wow. right around six sixty percent, six zero. Now, I don't want to suggest that sixty percent are fraud. What I will say though is that sixty percent of them just don't meet the guidelines. It could be it's insufficient documentation. It could be their documentation doesn't meet the guidelines and it it's inadequate, meaning it doesn't have the specificity it needs. And we return these back to the requesters and tell them what we need and put the ball back in their court. And a lot of, of these folks will self-convert these requests and process it as a pet. And yeah. then they come through our pet process. And when they come through our pet process, that means they've self-converted it from an animal to a pet. Pets are not a protected class. That means uh, housing providers can move ahead with their pet fees or pet rents, pet deposits, whatever it is they charge. And then of course, if it's a pet, we do all of our risk analysis. And then, of course, we issue our FIDO score. And FIDO score is a sort of a clever marketing term, but everyone is very familiar with other scoring systems. And we use a FIDO score. And the FIDO score, the property managers are using to set their pet fees and pet rents. And so the, the whole pet part of our screening is very, very important. But that's how folks start with an animal and then sometimes convert themselves to a pet. It's really an incredible service, and uh, the only people that pay, Wes, are pet owners. It's free to animal owners because we cannot charge them. We do not charge them. It's free to re uh, residents and tenants that do not have a pet because naturally we can never charge them, but we still make them go through the process and get them on the record. The only role in this entire equation that's paying anything are the tenants and residents that have a pet, and it's a nominal fee. It's $20 for one year, and we give them a service in return. A pet owner gets a really cool pet management product for a year so that they can take their pet profiles and share it with their doggy daycares and their dog groomers and dog walkers. So pet owners get a really neat product, but what the property manager gets is all that data, the photos, the vaccination records, the microchip records, behavioral history. If there's if they're doing business with poo prints, we'll grab that data, stick it in as well. They'll get any of the incident reporting if there's been any past incidents with that resident from another property. And then they'll get the FIDO score. And the FIDO score is really for the property manager's eyes only. The, the pet owner has no idea they're being scored. And that FIDO score can help property managers make much better decisions about pets and their owners. Not all pet owners are equal, and our FIDO score reflects the pet owner and the responsibility level of that owner as much as it does the pet. Yeah, that's that's amazing. I've got some other questions that from our audience that I want to that I want to ask, but before I do that, uh, this is kind of a question to to both of you guys. As far as any other type of legislation that property managers need to know of that, that may be recently on the books or something that's that's coming up, is there anything that, that you would want to share for our audience to say, hey, keep your eyes on this or understand this law just came into effect recently? Anything there that you guys 
uh, would like to share? Well, I'll start with on the animal side of the house. Uh, no pun intended for your show here, but <laughs> you know, there uh, just know the Fair Housing Act is a federal guideline, and there's a lot of states that are passing uh, or attempting to pass additional statutes as it relates to assistance animals. Some states might be saying, for example, that a uh, healthcare provider must be licensed in their state to be able to properly diagnose an emotional support animal. And what I will share with you is that HUD has not reviewed any of the state laws and determined any of them to be substantially equivalent with the Fair Housing Act at the federal level. So what that really means is just be aware that wherever you live, whatever state you live, you, you know, there's the state issue, but then there's the federal issue. And pet screening, we apply the federal standard. It's the highest and the most safe, in our opinion, guidelines to apply. Mm -hmm. If you follow your state laws, if you do live in states that pass laws that are maybe more restrictive than the Fair Housing Act, then there, it could put you in a very, it could put you in a quandary because you might not have a state claim, but then you might have a discrimination claim at a federal level. And so just be aware that states have their own sovereignty and their own rights, but they cannot usurp federal authority. So just that to me is a real a real quandary for the industry. And so I just want to make sure all your listeners know that it's, it's, it's easy to get excited about what my state's doing as it relates to assistance animals, but it depends on what the statutes are that not all of it may be shared with HUD. They may not share that same perspective. Where I would recommend folks focus on is the fraudulent aspect. Any state that can strengthen their criminal penalties for people who are committing assistance animal fraud, mm -hmm. that is something that uh, I think every state should be doing because in those instances where we find fraud, yeah. then a property manager can actually prosecute, find a DA, and not until the bad actors start paying the price will other bad actors realize this is not a good idea. Exactly right. Exactly right. Jay, did you have anything else you wanted to add to that? No, I follow John the Lawman on all <laughs> law decisions. Great. I've been called far worse. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let's get into some of the some of the pet screening questions that came from our, our audience at the summits. Uh, you talked uh, already about how you guys actually actually make money. This this service is one hundred percent free to the property management company. The properties there's nothing there that they're taking on. No type of setup fee or anything like that. Am I correct? You are correct. The only disclosure I have to make is this is assuming that they're pet friendly. If they don't allow pets, they cannot use us to validate their animals because we would have no way to make revenue. Gotcha. So if they're, if they're a no pet facility or a no pet company, then we would not be a good fit. But if they're pet friendly and they do business with us, then of course, we're going to generate revenue through those pets. And then we're happy to help them on the animals. We keep a very watchful eye on the ratio of how many animals we are receiving from, versus the number of pets. And we know what the ratio should be. So if we're starting to get a high number of animals and very few pets, then it might drive a different discussion, which could lead to just discontinuing the service uh, or just a friendly reminder that your property managers need to send us everyone. Because without the pet revenue, we have no way to pay our legal review team to go do the hard work that they're doing on the animal side. Yeah. How long does the screening process typically take? So it's instantaneous for not the no pet profile because we're just basically getting a lot of policies right. on the record. So there's nothing slowing them down. Uh, on the pet side, when we collect all the data from the tenant and resident, you know, for everything from photos, if they submit any vaccination records, when they submit it, our very complex and proprietary algorithm uh, instantly reviews and then analyzes the data, and then we give a FIDO score. So it's 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 pretty darn instantaneous as well. The animal side, because there's human capital, we review it within 24 business hours. But because we're also dealing with the third-party healthcare providers and the fact that we're contacting them, we often are slowed down because that healthcare provider may not respond to us, and we give them two attempts. 24 hours and 24 hours. And if they don't respond, then we return it back to the animal owner. The good news is we do it faster and more efficient than anyone can do it because we're doing it the right way. And if, if a company was doing it the right way, they would have to be going through these same exact steps. And number two, we always put the ball back in the requester's court because it's incumbent on them to deliver what is needed to support their claim. So everything we do is tracked and there's threaded discussion between our legal review team and the requester. So any property manager can see exactly what's going on, what has gone on, what has transpired, and it's all there for their uh, ability to use anytime. 
I, I love this uh, this next question that we got. I think this was in Waco, but the question was, is it valid if a resident states they have multiple ESAs? Yeah, so what they're really saying is, can a resident have multiple assistance animals? And the answer is yes. The Fair Housing Act does not limit the number of animals. Uh, the Fair Housing Act uses words like it must be reliable, credible, meet the test of reasonableness. When it comes to multiple animals, there must be a nexus between each animal and the individual's disability and how that animal you know, addresses or ameliorates the disability. So let's just take an example of some, some resident that has three cats. The healthcare provider is going to have to provide some sort of uh, specific information that would demonstrate that cat number two and cat number three provide a nexus to the disability that cat number one does not provide. Hmm. And so you can't just use a letter that says animals, plural, and then use it for five or use it for 10 or use it for three. The, a lot of residents you know, excuse me, a lot of property managers use these letters with multiple, you know, it'll say plural and they'll use it for three and four, but they really have more rights than that. The beauty is when you use pet screening, you don't have to really worry about that anymore because our legal review team, we check into that. We make sure that that, that we believe there is a nexus between those animals. And it's not uncommon, uh, Wes and Jay, for a family a husband might have a request for his animal. A daughter might have a request mm. for her animal. So is that multiple animals living in one household? Yes. But we would review the husband or the father's request individually. And then we, re- we would review the daughter's request individually. That's how we would treat that. Gotcha. Hey, and, and to take that back towards student housing, uh, and there's a, a mother is going to visit her son, right? And he may have pet or a service animal. And then the the mother is bringing, you know, what could be an ESA. How would you direct the property manager to uh, to screen both? Because uh, essentially, we'd want both of those animals screened. Is that what you would suggest to them, or, or is there another way to go about that? Well, I mean, there's no doubt that there is sort of there's an issue when you have a resident who's living in a property, and then they have a friend that's trying to come up, and the friend wants to bring their emotional support animal. The, the test there is that the friend is not on the lease with them. Therefore, that friend's emotional support animal isn't exactly fair game to bring over to the residence. And so that's part of the confusion here. Now, if the friend is blind and the friend has a seeing eye dog, well, now there's an obvious disability. You know, it would be reasonable to allow the friend with a seeing eye dog onto the property and to come over and and visit the friend. So emotional support animals, assistance animals in general, are all about for the residents or the the people that are living in the actual the unit, the, the actual rental. People on the outside who have emotional support animals need those for their residences, but they just don't get a hall pass to bring that over and visit. And if a property, though, said, you know what, that's fair game, We're, we welcome that, they most certainly in advance you know, could work with pet screening. And again, as long as they're not taking advantage of our service, we would be willing to, you know, even help validate a friend's emotional support animal for the purpose of visiting. But that really is outside the guidelines. And we would just be doing it more as a favor to help. We just wouldn't want someone taking, you know, too much advantage of that because that's more animal reviews for us, for people that aren't even living there. Gotcha. Perfect. Last question. What type of language is is needed for the lease agreement and the resident application in in order for implementing pet screening? Yeah. So on the... Yeah. So on the resident application, it's easy. You would just make sure that in your resident application or as a part of the application process, everyone understands that they need to go through pet screening. Now, if you're using one of our two-way integrations, so if you're a current one site or if you're currently with Yardi, that's kind of done automatically. Uh, and we're working on Entrada probably in 2020 uh, here, probably the first quarter. But Without those integrations, you would just direct everybody to the landing page that that is customizable for that community. And when they get to that landing page, that resident's going to have a choice to either say, I want to start with no pet, I want to start with a pet, or I want to seek an accommodation request for an animal. They have three choices to make. And whichever choice they make, it doesn't matter. We know that it's coming from that community. So in the application process, we provide communities with digital flyers that they can email their residents or their future residents. They can put it in the actual application process. Uh, So we can absolutely kind of guide and coach them on how to do that. In terms of the actual lease agreement, 
I would just say, make sure your policies are up to date. It's probably not a bad move to just say that you use a third party pet screening company. You don't really want to reference petscreening.com because we don't want them going to petscreening.com. We want them coming to the landing page that was directed, that we gave the community. And if you gotcha. say we use petscreen.com, we, we don't want them coming to us directly. But to call us a third-party pet screening service is fair game because, you know, the, the word pet screening would be separate. They're two words. So uh, it's probably not a bad idea just to disclose that they use pet screening for all their residents. But I would more focus on the policies. What happens if you're caught with an unauthorized pet? What are your breed restrictions as it relates to pets, if any? And we're seeing more and more companies that use pet screening drop their breed restrictions because the FIDO score lets them make better decisions. Because I promise you, not every pit bull, not every German Shepherd is some, some, someone not worth renting to. There are some very wonderful dogs that have wonderful, loving owners that are willing to pay higher pet fees, higher pet rents, just to have the, their dog live with them. And if our FIDO score can help you make a better decision and know the risk you're taking, then why not give those folks a chance? Because what's happening is without it, they're coming back tomorrow with a letter from their healthcare provider, and chances are you might have to let that pit bull or that German Shepherd in anyway, but now you're not going to be able to charge any revenue yeah. for it. So you might as well try to monetize everything that you can within reason and just know the, the data. And there's a, there's a reason that the top five animal breeds are pit bulls, German Shepherds. They're in that top five list. It's because in a lot of cases, those are restricted pet breeds and people are just coming in with healthcare provider letters. Yeah, yeah exactly. Well, John and Jay, I, again, I appreciate this so much. I appreciate what your companies are doing. Appreciate your your support of of our podcast and Student Housing Insight. But the services that you guys are are providing to the industry is just remarkable. You've taken a huge frustration point for uh, for the property management industry and, and and becoming more so now for for the student housing industry as well, and making this a, a much more simple process and and really you know allowing us to do what I think we do best which is is service our residents and give them a place that they can call home when uh, when they're away from home so uh, being able to to include their pets in in that and their their assistance animals is a huge deal and you guys are helping us manage that process and I appreciate it greatly uh, any other parting thoughts guys no, we just appreciate you having us on the, the show today, and uh, we're excited to be working with you and uh, your team, and, and we look forward to getting our integration finished with Pooh Prints, and we hope everyone out there will use our services together. Great. And John asked Jay earlier about contact information. Obviously, petscreening.com is the website. Any additional information you want to pass on in regards to contact? You know, we make it easy. You can send an email to info at petscreening.com if you're interested, or of course, go to our website. Either way, we're here to help you and uh, we look forward to servicing anyone that comes our way. Great guys, I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you all. Guys, thanks for listening, and I hope this episode helped you get some clarity about your plan for managing pets and assistance animals. Again, I want to thank Simple Bills for sponsoring this podcast, and don't forget, you can go follow this discussion and many more on the SHI Community Forum at studenthousinginsight.com. All right, guys, have a great day. Mm -hmm.